Are you ready to sink your teeth into scripture and get a bulldog grip on its truth? Let's gnaw on some doctrine and get bulldogmatic. Here is your host. The number 12 a lot, the number 7 a lot. Yeah, multiples of 12, you get right. into the 144,000. Yeah, definitely. It's all through scripture. And that's a Jewish context, you know, and I, you're going to get tired of me saying that through this series, but this is this is where it happened. This is where it all right. came out of. And so when you read books like Revelation and things, you have to think, well, these numbers mean something, mm-hmm. something to them. That they, What's 12 mean to me? Well, nothing outside of the scriptures. But the scriptures had a way of... Uh, speaking of things, and God had a way of numbering things in certain situations. And, and it's interesting, even our own, our culture, you know, you, you go buy eggs. How many eggs do you usually buy? You buy 12, 12. right? Uh, you go buy uh, donuts by the dozen. Dozen. Yeah, or uh, 12. So it's interesting how even through uh, paganistic cultures, which uh, ours is becoming, yeah. unfortunately, uh, you still see that that these themes and things run that have kind of made their way through other cultures for sure and even when uh when people swear they they when they blaspheme you know take the lord's name yeah i've never heard anyone say you know krishna that's right and i'm not trying to be disrespectful to anyone's religion i'm just saying when i hear um blasphemous words i hear the name of christ and in my mind everybody knows deep down what are you doing when you make a, a curse word? When you let out a curse, you're trying to say something powerful because you're angry and you're letting out something powerful. And deep down, when you uh, cry out or yell out, you're, you're calling out to the most powerful name in anger and in blasphemy. This is, this is not a good calling out as, as someone calling out for salvation in the Lord. Um, but the, you know, it's kind of like the people on the plane when they, everybody's an atheist until the plane's going down. That's right. And they start praying. And I'm not saying that everybody does, but people that you wouldn't think uh, change their mind real quick when the uh, angle of the plane yeah. changes. And I'm not trying to make light of that either. But getting um, back to this, so culture is very, very important. It is important when we study and read scripture. Uh, we look at who who the writer is writing to and how they would understand it. And that helps us better understand it. Sure. Uh, sure. It just makes sense. I, I like the statement that says, you know, theologians will say, the Bible was written for us. The Bible was not written to us. Correct. And, uh, you know, sometimes you tell people that and it kind of rubs them the wrong way, like you pinched them or something. And you say, well, well, why does that bother you? And the Bible's written for me. And it's, well, I wouldn't word it that way. I believe that God's benevolence is towards you and that it was offered to you in Christ and that he created you, and we can go all through the, the common grace of God. But the Bible, specifically, the, the way that God has chosen to communicate with mankind is through a collection of books that were written by other people to other people. And then it's our job to look at what that means in that context and, and not to just make it mean whatever. And that's kind of what is trending in a lot of American evangelicalism. Is it just means whatever I think it means. It's my truth. Yeah. Uh, and so it becomes, it can mean anything. You know, it, it, it's up for grabs. There's nothing right. objective that you're getting to, like mathematics, uh, an interpretation that was meant. Um, but in in my, and I think the Christian understanding is that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was just that. God is speaking by the Holy Spirit. And when you say something, Scott, you mean what you say. And if someone says, well, Scott told me to uh, water the lawn, 
and uh, I'm going to go and do crimes in his name. Well, you didn't, you said what are the law, and you didn't say do crimes. And so I think the scriptures are the same way. If someone says, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord, and we hear that all the time, the David Koresh's and the different crazy um, um, cult leaders, that they'll say they're getting this from the Bible, and that they're Mm -hmm. scriptural. Um, But the way I try to cut through that with people is I say, well, what if I started uh, murdering people in your name? And they say, well, I didn't tell you to murder people. Well, that's the same way with cult leaders and people that are coming out of the context of the scriptures. It's not God that inspired them. Exactly right. So the way you study scripture is very important. Yes. Very important. It is very important. It's going to determine whether you get to the truth that God intended. All right. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Mm-hmm. I read an excerpt first, right? No, yeah, no, that's fine. I might have said the wrong, I said 329, but actually it was 330. So, yeah, that, that gives it to you. Um, the most important part there. So in this context, um, they're saying, they're trying to, Jesus is casting out demons. They're not denying that he's casting out demons, but they're going to say that he's doing it through demons, that he's actually on the side of Satan, and that he has control of that kingdom because he's a part of that kingdom. He's working for that kingdom. And um, Jesus begins to give kind of an illustration here that would say that that's not true because... Uh, if Satan rises up against himself and is divided, he's not able to stand, right? Because if you have that's a house divided cannot stand. I mean, we've had presidents say that and quotes, and it's actually quoting back to Jesus that um, if Satan was fighting against Satan, the kingdom of Satan would fall, and they would no longer be moving and doing things, uh, evil things for the, the kingdom of, of, of Satan. But he said something really interesting. That's the main point, but he also said that one is able to no one is able to enter a strong man's house and steal his property unless he first ties up the strong man okay so you have to wonder who's the strong man okay well in context we're talking about satan we're talking about his kingdom and so you have to tie up the strong man then he can enter and thoroughly plunder his house so the picture is you go in and if you're a bad guy you don't say where's the the woman and the women and the children. You go in and you find the big early man of the house that can subdue you. You tie him up, then you can take all the property because the kids, you, you know, it's just that's the way they're looking at it. They're not going to be a threat. Then you can totally plunder the house. Okay, but I, he goes into that. He's talking about binding Satan. He's actually saying that he can bind Satan and then plunder his house. Again, this isn't a I am God statement, but this is saying someone in this person of Christ is saying that he can bind uh, Satan and just plunder his house. Now, they are not doing that. Like I said, we've talked about the exorcisms that they would do and the ways that they would try to fight the kingdom of Satan, Mm -hmm. and it was very much intermediary and uh, not commanding. Well, Jesus is saying, in essence, that he can just tie Satan up and and steal everything out of his house if he wanted to. And that's, in essence, what he's doing in first century Israel. Everybody's demon-possessed and sinning and 
and all kinds of terrible things, and he's coming and causing repentance and healing to come. He's delivering people from demons. He's giving sight back, and lame, you know, lame men are walking. Uh, so and where he really bonds Satan is comes at the end of Mark, correct? Yes, yes. That's at the cross. Yes. That is where Satan is defeated. Yes, that's where Satan is defeated when Satan thinks he is winning. If you read the Gospels, it talks about... Um, Satan inciting Judas uh, to, to do this betrayal of Christ, to take care of this betrayal. Um, but in essence, so that tells you that Satan is inciting something that he thinks will benefit him or win for him even. Right. But it ends up being the thing that defeats him exactly. and crushes the head yeah. of the serpent. It's all part of God's plan. It's all part of the plan that goes back to Genesis 3 when God yeah. said he would call it, crush the head of the serpent, which we'll incredible. be talking about at church coming up here in a few weeks. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah. What's next? So, we would want to look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. Well, that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boats, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea Obey him. Hmm. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, and so you see that question again. That question that uh, is either spoken uh, explicitly by Mark mm. or is implied in the story when Jesus says these wild things about himself to them in the first century. Um, who then is this? And that's the whole point we're doing this. If you're getting lost in the weeds uh, of all this information and scripture, and uh, the whole point is who then is this? And right. we're just trying to look at this. Um, uh, for what the scriptures say and how they, they betray him. And that's the that's the key. I mean, we don't have to belabor this. Uh, verse 41 says they are overwhelmed by fear. Right? So they are terrified, terrified that there is even a person that can do this. You know, mm -hmm. that, that someone is able to, how did he just do that? And they figure that this is, these are the disciples that are seeing things that he's done, but this is next level. <laughs> uh, this is next level because he's in control of nature. Now, I don't have to take you to Old Testament passages. This works in our because because we understand, um, well, even if it's just through movies, if you're talking to someone through movies, and if someone um, in the Avengers or whatever is controlling, or maybe I can even think of the X-Men, you know, you had Storm, and she could control, but she is a supernatural being, a supernatural person. Now, we're talking about movies, and we're talking about our context. And even in our context, we think, there's something special about this person. If they're controlling the weather, you're either thinking God or one of the little g-gods or one of the action, uh, you know, superheroes of movies and different things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, but you're, you're, you're thinking that he's something above us. Uh, but in, the, in, in their context, they're thinking of some of the Psalms, uh, like Psalm 107, verse 28 says, they cried out to Yahweh in their distress. He delivered them from all their troubles. He calmed the storms and the waves grew silent. And so 
Uh, sometimes that's speaking poetically, but we know in the Exodus, that's a very literal story where he is controlling the winds and the water and to, to part the way for God's people, and he's controlling it to destroy the enemies of God's people. So, um, yeah, again, you don't really need a, an Old Testament reference to that, uh, but it's still there. Right, it um, is. And it's incredible, all these things that Christ is saying, you can just go right back to the Old Testament, find it, it, find it in the Old Testament, and understand what he's talking about. One of the things in this scripture that has always amazed me is they're afraid of the storm. They're afraid of perishing. But when, when Jesus comes out and calms the storm, I believe they're even more afraid of him and what he had just done in front of them than they were of the storm itself. Yeah. And that's what, you know, you kind of have to to get, when it says they were overwhelmed by fear and said, well, it doesn't tell you why. But that seems to be the most plausible explanation that, that mm-hmm. they just saw something so amazing uh, and they're growing in their faith. They don't, the, the fact that they're scared tells me they don't understand who he is yet. Because, you know, as you understand who Christ is, the more power you see in Christ, the more comforting it is. And that's what right. we'll get to at the very end of this. You know, we'll have an application to what all this means uh, for us personally. But they're growing in their faith. And he even said that. Do you still not have enough faith? Do you still not have faith? in me for who I am. So they're falling short of something here that they really shouldn't be because they've seen other things that he has done. But don't we all always yes. fall short yes. in our faith? Absolutely. Unfortunately. Absolutely. And you, you get to see that process. And that's one of the things about the historicity of the Gospels is they're not portrayed, uh, you know, if you're if you're fabricating a story, you, you're going to portray them as the, the giants of the faith right. because these guys exactly. these guys are the, the pillars of our of, of uh-huh. the church you know in sense of the 12 disciples Christ obviously being the, the chief cornerstone but they're the beginning uh, of, of going out and getting disciples and they're portrayed exactly like we are right. uh, weak in faith stumbling arrogant saying stupid things um, thinking that you're better than you are and the Lord just being patient and, and saying look that's not true you're going to betray me three times, or even get behind me, Satan, you know, in some cases. So there's all kinds of levels to the beauty of the scriptures, and I, I hope we're looking at all of them, yeah. seeing, seeing and bring, all of them. And bringing out just a small portion yeah. of that out to to people. Yeah. Uh, this, I don't know about the viewers, but I'm enjoying this. This is fascinating. It's rich. So. It's, it's very rich. You're just going through the Gospel of Mark, but when you really dig in, I think it's just extremely rich and satisfying to the soul. Yes, it is. So where do we go next? Um, so from there, I would say um, we would go to Mark 5, and the passage is in 1 through 20. Um, I don't think we need to read the whole thing because you're going to be familiar with the story. Uh, this is where the demon, or demons, mm-hmm. legion, are in a man. Right. And I would say... And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbered about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the sea. 
The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Okay, and so, you know, that basically gives you what's going on there. Uh, you have a man that is possessed not by one demon, uh, but by legion, a legion of demons. And so this would be, uh, in the Roman context, we'd be talking about 6,000 men. Now, whether there's exactly 6,000 demons or if this is just symbolic to kind of give you the... the, the a large number. A large number of demons. This is yeah. a, a severe... Um, possession this is a severe circumstance that remember they're having a hard time even with one demon or with someone that has had any kind of de demonic activity uh, and so this is like the worst of the worst case here um, and this is a, a case to where if Jesus was anything other than God he would be um, calling on different angels and saying different things and using various different uh, ingredients to do this great work of delivering this man and we don't have to labor the um, application on this one because uh, we've already laid the, the groundwork if you've been watching the series or listening to the other uh, passages Jesus is commanding demons demons are fallen angels and he has direct command over them uh, there's no asking there's no would you please do this and there's no by Michael the Archangel or Gabriel or some of the angels that they had traditionally named uh, in the Jewish context it is just a straight speaking to them. And uh, this man couldn't even be subdued with chains. I mean, there was no amount of men or, or phys physicality that could be applied to him. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, they chained him up and he was able to break through the chains. Yeah. It's, it's an extreme strength. It is you know? an, an extreme situation. Yeah. That Jesus walked into it. wasn't your ordinary demon possession. No, no, and there was no, so you think of strength as kind of like a physical authority, right? If you have, uh, you know, Andre the Giant and me wrestling, he's going to have physical authority over me. Right. Uh, and, and you have anyone that's larger, they can exercise physical authority. Um, but this isn't a physical authority that's needed. There needs to be a spiritual authority, someone that is uh, ontologically, which means the uh, within his own person at his core being, uh, it, that is over these spirits. He has authority over them in that he is the creator of them. He is their boss, and they go where he says. And it doesn't matter how many. Uh, it could be a legion of legions. Mm -hmm. uh, but the point is that um, they all obeyed Christ. That, that legion of demons obeyed Christ in that situation. Now, they ended up wanting Jesus to leave because they ended up choosing uh, to be angry over the pigs uh, because that was probably a source of commerce for them. Right. And sadly, they... They are choosing, but there is hope because Jesus tells the man that's delivered to go in uh, to his country and to tell him what his, the Lord has done for him, how the Lord has had mercy on him. And so we look to that and say, hopefully he had a good evangelistic, uh, just like the Samaritan woman, of going into his realm of influence and sphere of influence and, and telling them about Jesus. Uh, but the deity of Christ is, is definitely there in that he's uh, commanding things that no man should or can command with any effectiveness. Right. 
So again, yeah. we see the deity of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body as she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And that's always a, a source of humor, you know, in church and for Christians. You know, you're, and even for them, Lord, you know, you're in this crowd, and, and who touched you? How can you say who touched you? You know, if you've ever been to a, uh, a concert or a, any kind of outdoor festival, and if you're in the bleachers or in seats, you know, if someone touches you, you know it's either him, 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 or her, or, you know, you know you're just kind of have a grid in your mind of where people are, and that's still a lot of people. But when you're in a crowd, like if you're on the lawn, uh, or the grass of an event, uh, you know, sometimes you go to a concert and you have the, the grass general mission. And uh, especially in some of the concerts I used to go to in a previous life, it got a little crazy and people were moving around a lot. You don't know who's who or who touched you. It would be like a situation right. like that. And so remember, Jesus is doing such healings that people are uh, moshing, <laughs> to, be, to give a modern day uh, equivalent to it, they're moshing around him to the point where everybody's touching him. Mm -hmm. Everybody's... But someone here is touching him with a different intention uh, in which the divine nature of Christ is going to interact with her in a way that's very mysterious for us to understand, but very amazing too. She's touching him with the faith that all she has to do is touch the hem of his garment, just touch part of him, just to get a connection with him. And her faith tells her that, and she, she wants to do that by faith. That's the work that she's going to perform. And... It happens. She um, she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. So she's healed of it as soon as she touches him. And so, again, Mark, as you see through the Gospel of Mark, it, it's almost the central thesis of upping the ante for who Christ is. It was that he's touching people. Right. And he's, he's commanding things. And you're saying, whoa, who is this guy? Now it's being up to the point where he's, uh, Mark is saying, well, actually, one time a woman just came up and touched him and was healed. And the power of God flowed through without Jesus even being fully cognizant of what had happened. And then you get into the, the divine natures and the human natures of Christ because he doesn't know the day or hour of his coming. And he does not know, uh, at first, who touched him. Who, who was healed here? And she didn't actually touch him himself. Yeah. She touched the hem of, of his garment. That is a very important point, you know, because it's not... Just touching Jesus, that's one thing to say, well, this man is so powerful, if I touch his arm, or if I grab his hand, or if I can look at him and hold his face, no, 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 his clothes. And so even the clothes of Christ are considered holy because of who they're on, and it's symbolic, it's not that we worship garments, right. uh, but it's because of who, it's like in a burning bush. Uh, Moses had to take his shoes off because the ground he was standing on was holy. Well, God created the whole earth, but God was manifesting himself in a specific way in the burning bush. And so when right. he came to the burning bush, take your shoes off. Well, it's the same way here. Uh, the garments aren't holy, but they're on someone that are holy. Therefore, it's holy ground. It's holy garment, if I dare say, right. as the ground is holy. Or holy area. Holy area. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So, so this is a very powerful, uh, deified man. It is the way it's presented. And remember, we're in the Gospel of Mark where there's no deity of Christ. Yeah. So they said, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. 
Where, where to next? Uh, so next I'd like to look at Mark 6, and again, a large passage here. Uh, Mark Wait, you can, you're welcome to read it yourself. You know? or, or just uh, speak into the context of it. Uh, again, this is a large, long passage where it's Mark 6, uh, verses 30 through 44, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And okay. so... Um, there you go. It should be fairly familiar to most Yeah, I think I Christians. could just jump in. Uh, when I... So, if you're if you're not a Christian, you need to read it. Yeah, you need to, to take the references, and uh, for time's sake, we, we post these, and we're trying to not uh, gobble up a lot of time, uh, and the scripture is definitely very important, but that's the reason we're giving you the scripture references. You should, you should go there and be familiar with where we're speaking from. But this is Mark chapter 6, and it's verses 30 through 34, and it's where Jesus feeds 5,000 people, um, and this... This feeding of the 5,000 is taking place in Bethsaida. And it's important to remember that when we look at the feeding of the 4,000. So Bethsaida is in Israel, and it's around close to the Sea of Galilee. And that's really all you need to know for the, the theological reference we're going to make later. Because uh, he feeds 5,000, and then he feeds 4,000. And I used to look at that and be like, what's the point? Well, why didn't they just feed 9,000 at once? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's separated, but it's for a reason. And it's a very interesting reason if you look at it. Um, but I think Jesus here, just to speak directly to the point, is purposefully painting a picture from the Exodus. And you say, well, what? Well, he's miraculously feeding God's people in the wilderness where they have no food. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're, they're out from, from an area where they have no food. And if you read the narrative, it's like... Uh, you got to send the people off so they can get food. Right. right? So the teaching's done. Let them go do what they need to do. And Jesus says, you feed them. <laughs> and they're going, no, we I, do I don't have much food. You know, I don't have much here. Um, and so Jesus is putting himself in the place of Yahweh by doing feeding miraculously the people that are gathered to hear God's word with food that's not there. What does that remind us of? That reminds us of the manna. Yes. Reminds us of... How okay? You've delivered us from the Israelites are saying you've delivered us from uh, Egypt, where we were fed well. Now we're out here in the wilderness. We're just going to starve to death. Yeah. Well, God had a plan the whole time, and they were grumbling and angry. And I think we can all relate with that. Yeah, people, Unfortunately, as well, yeah. you know, people tend to grumble a lot. Yeah, about how God decides to provide for you. Yes. It may not be the way you expected, right, uh, or want it. And so I, I think he's definitely making that illusion that he Yahweh provided for the people of God miraculously with, with manna. He's providing for them with loaves and fishes. And something to remember here is that that's another American context thing. When you hear 5,000 people, you're like, wow, that's a lot. You know, We've talked about what 5,000 people looks like and how many that really is. Well, back then they only counted the men. Now when we count an arena and we say, if we say... That there's, this is rough from my memory, I don't know, it's like 95,000 people in the Coliseum in, in Los Angeles. Uh, I think it can, ha it can hold even more. We mean literally there are 95,162 bodies in that place. Correct. Well, back then, they're just, they're just counting the men, number one. They're not counting the women, and they're not counting the children, and the families were traditionally larger than what we're used to. You know, I, right. I have three sons, and sometimes say, wow, big family. And I think... Yes, in our context, that's a big family. But in ancient context, we read about Jesus having, I believe, uh, in Matthew 13, we have four brothers named and sisters. Mm -hmm. Okay, in Matthew 13, when his 
family comes to address him and to uh, rebuke him, actually. But uh, we're dealing, you could be dealing easily, easily with fifteen to 20,000 people here, uh, if not more. Right. Total. Okay, and so that's just to give you an so, idea of who's being fed was no out small of nothing. Grow. Yeah, out of nothing. Out of nothing. Well, five. Well, they had, yeah. Yeah, the loaves and two fishes. fishes. Yeah, two fish. So, um, what I'm doing there is saying that in the Old Testament, it was the manna out of nothing. With this, it was out of little, out of little. And so, it's a miraculous feeding in the wilderness wilderness where they have no food. And so, I would say they're immediately thinking, this this guy's acting like Yahweh. What is he doing? These people were very religious. They knew the scripture. Yeah. So that 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 should have been the picture that came immediately to their mind. He's speaking their language. Yes. Just like if today I said, uh, you know, it's raining cats and dogs, you're not asking me if it was pit bulls or border collies. Right. You know, I'm we speaking, know it's we're speaking each other's language. Rain it's raining hard. Raining hard. <laughs> so, okay. um, you know, sometimes you might think I'm over, we're over-spiritualizing, you know, and that's, that's a, that is a danger of some... Uh, teachers and, and, and philosophies of theology, but Jesus himself actually made a point that the feeding of the 5,000 um, and the 4,000 were actually a spiritual lesson. So I'm just going to read from Mark. Uh, well, actually, you want to read that since you're already there. It's just Mark chapter 8, and it's verses 17 through 21. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Right. So, you know, if you look at this, he's saying they should be getting a spiritual lesson. They should be getting understanding for this. And mm-hmm. it's not, it's not, a lot of times the disciples were taking Jesus more literally than they need to, and they were getting in trouble, Right. Uh, and even the enemies of Jesus, when Jesus said, you know, destroy this temple and, and I'll raise it up in three days. And they're like, he said he was going to destroy the, the beautiful temple in Jerusalem. No, he was talking about his body. Right. Uh, and he's constantly making uh, spiritual application. And so just want to give credence to the fact that the feeding of the 5,000 was not just about feeding hungry people, although that was part of it. Mm-hmm. He cares and has compassion that these people have listened to him and heard him and are seeking him in some way. Um and they're hungry, so he's going to feed them. On one level, that's that's the purpose. But on another level, he's making a point in Mark 8 um, about the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 that they need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. In other words, they need to be open to spiritual lessons that are coming from this, not just the fact that bellies are being filled. Mm-hmm. And so that just kind of gives you... Um, we want to read the, the scriptures and the stories the way Jesus intends. And it appears... As he talks to his disciples, he wants us to be having, uh, getting spiritual revelation and, and lessons about who he is and who we are as his people mm-hmm. um, from that. So I just think that's an important passage. And in, in getting back to uh, um, him saying, do you not have the eyes to see or the ears to hear? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of, isn't that why he spoke in parables? 
Yes, Uh-oh. yes, that gets into um, the reason for the parables when they asked mm-hmm. him. He said, uh, you know, it is for um, for those who are seeking him to understand, but for those who do not have ears to see and eyes to uh, ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, that they're hardened, that they're hardened by the parable. So the same parable can cut right to the heart of a, of a believer. You might hear a parable and you go, wow. And you learn so much about Christ and about God, and you're so encouraged. And then another person hears that, and they become angry because they don't understand it. They scoff, and they're actually hardened. So you two are right. moving in different directions with the same parable. Exactly. And that's that's the miracle of um, the spiritual miraculousness of the way Christ taught. Mm-hmm. It was doing different things to different people based on the predetermined plan of God. And the way he continues to teach through his word. Yeah. Too. yeah. Uh, because the same reaction, then you get the same reaction now from yeah. people who read and hear his word. Yes, I mean, some people get so angry, and I, uh, you know, I, I do sometimes name names as far as false teachers, and sometimes I don't, but there are um, the sons of, some sons and daughters of prominent preachers that end up not just not believing and saying, well, you know, that's good for you, um, I just don't believe, but they end up being some of the most um, hateful, and I say this with a, with a, a sorrow in my heart, that they become some of the most hateful and angry people against Christianity, uh, more so than the one who is uh, very neutral. And it's just very sad, but it's like it's almost like the, the Word of God has, because of what they have chosen to reject, has hardened them to the point where they are just um, dangerous people right. um, spiritually, and they just, they're just hateful. And they, they like to call us haters because we say that certain things are sin, and mm-hmm. we won't budge on these things. Um, but we say that out of love for someone, need, right. wanting them to repent and be able to be restored to God. Um, but they legitimately hate the people of God. They hate the scriptures, and they mock and um, treat the scriptures with great contempt. And I think it's because they, because of that truth that you're talking about, they've been hardened. Exactly. Um, so next passage would be uh, Mark six, verses forty-five through fifty-two. And I think you can just read. 48 through 52. This is Jesus walking on the water. And so you, you know that, at least somewhat you know about that. You've heard that Jesus walked on water. It's in jokes and movies and various different things. But here's, here's what the scriptures say about it. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking in the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. How far did you say? Um, go through 52 would be good. Okay. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Yeah, right. And that just ties into what we just said. Uh, so far, their hearts are hardened. The Word of God, the parables are not um, softening them and enlightening them. And the Spirit of God is not uh, made clear to them who Christ is yet. Yet, and I say yet because they eventually do um, get it. At least mm-hmm. 11 of them. Uh, yeah, here's a man walking on the city. Yeah. I've never heard of anything, any stories before 
Jesus doing that? There may have been some. I've never heard of them. I've never heard of it since either, uh, other than illusions, you know, people putting rocks in the but, um, yeah. this It wasn't the case here because they are out in the middle uh, right. of the Sea of Galilee. Right, and that's the problem that a lot of people have with uh, setting this aside as mythology. Because this is where a lot of people will go and say, well, this is mythology. This is like the Greek writings where they say all these extravagant things happen. But the problem is, is that even secular unbelieving historians will look at the Gospel of Mark and say, um, I'm sorry, this is a historical biography. This is uh, about a person. This is about what they believe as eyewitnesses happened. And you have that on both sides. Now you just have to question their reason and you, have to, you can go through all that. But you can't put it in the side of mythology because it reads like a historical narrative that these things are actually happening. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you're stuck with that trilemma of, of these things are recorded to have happened by eyewitnesses and they're willing to uh, die for see, either seeing these things or not seeing these things. That's the thing. Too. Now, some people yeah. get deceived by a message, but I can be deceived about you telling me something that happened, but I'm not going to die for something that I either saw or I didn't see. Right. And all of them, they spread out, and the you know the history would have them going to various different parts of the globe where they say Thomas went to India, and they say Matthew went to Ethiopia, and you know whether that's true or not, they they exactly they definitely spread out, and then they were martyred um, for these, and there's there's reason to believe those are true because I mean you don't just uh, for example India is not a great place where people want to just make up stories and say we have this great connection to Christianity. It's very I have friends in India. It's very hostile. Uh, overall towards Christianity. And so this tradition uh, of, of Thomas, I believe it is, uh, things like that would seem to be true. Uh, and they're spreading out for this, um, these things that they saw and that this person that they were transformed by. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and this is just and another... All, and all of them. And like you said, they died for it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know about you, but no matter how much I like a teacher yeah. or in... How much I admire that teacher, uh, I would have to think he's God before I would go die for him. Yeah, to 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 purposely yeah. die, especially. And I would. Yeah. You know, I. It would be hard for me to die for the truth, mm -hmm. but I would never die for a lie. Right, and that's the point. That's the point. And people say, well, you know, people. Martyrs get deceived all the time to die for something that might not be true or isn't true. But that's different than eyewitness testimony. They're not saying, at least not these first disciples, now, now later Christians, yes. But the, the first disciples are saying, this is what we saw. This is what I'm willing to die for. Um, and so, and, and if you had one person that was crazy enough to do that, how do you get 500, you know, the, you have the 500 eyewitnesses to the, the resurrection and you have these people that... Uh, saw Jesus and they were willing to die for that testimony. Yes. And so, uh, but getting back to this, this, there's another bombshell here, and it's not only, we'll, we'll talk about two of them. Um, and, and it's Job chapter 9, verse 8 says that only God tramples the waves of the sea. Okay, and so God tramples the waves of the sea. And you just, you have to think, they're thinking back to the, they remember when that was read on Sabbath, or that was read at a certain time to them. Only God does this. And so, Again, you don't really need a scripture. If someone walks in the water, you know there's something marvelous about them. Um, but, again, it's that connection to the Old Testament that they're looking at. But there's another one that is huge. I love, I really like this one because 
you have um, the I am statements of John. Have you ever heard of these? It's not just where he says, before Abraham was, I am. But he also said, I am the light of the word. It's ego ami in the Greek. And it's very very much an allusion to God saying, I am, back in Exodus 3 and in Isaiah. Uh, and so, ego ami is very much a claim of deity. Jesus said, before Abraham was, ego ami, I am. It means I exist, I'm self-existing, I am the God of the Old Testament. And that's very obvious. That's why even the, the liberal scholars would say, okay, yeah, by the time of John, he's been deified, because that's clearly a reference to deity. Um, but here's the cool thing. But immediately, this is um, in verse 50 at the end, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. The literal Greek there is I am. Okay, it is I is the way we translate it because when we say, um, well, technically, okay, so if my wife gets home and she hears a noise, she say, Jason, is that you? And I would say, I would not say it is I. I would say, it's me. You'd say, it's me. Okay, well, this is the way it works in English, but the way uh, it's actually in the Greek, it's I am. And so he's making another I am statement, and of course this is debated, the, the liberal scholars would explain this away, but that's for you to research and more if you want, and if you are if you know Greek, check it out. If you don't, go listen to teachers that know Greek. That's that's what is said here, it's ego on me. So I I say we actually have an I am statement um, here in Mark, in Mark. And, in, and in another place in Mark. I believe there's two places in right. Mark that have I am statements. And so it's very intriguing, very exciting, uh, as if walking on the water wasn't enough. Yeah. Remember, it says he, he planned to pass by them. That's right. Yeah, he, he just wants to show them, he just wants to present this Old Testament imagery of Yahweh, is what I would say. And then they're saying, oh, wow, there he is. He's walking on the water. I get it, I get it, I get it. Well, things change, and, it, and, and not according to the predetermined plan of God, but according to how Jesus is interacting with his disciples, there's a little change of plan there. Um, but he does say, I am, and he's going to say it again in this gospel. To be continued, we will continue this conversation in the next episode. And it keeps getting more and more interesting. Be sure to like and share this with your friends, and be sure to subscribe to our channel. Thanks for listening.